In this episode of Boss Files, she's a first in so many ways. Former Xerox chief Ursula Burns, the first African-American female CEO of a Fortune 500 company and the first woman to succeed another woman as the head of a Fortune 500 company. And a woman who was told as a kid she had three strikes against her. When I was about 13, it was the first time I heard it. And the person said, you know, you're pretty smart, but you have, a, you have some challenges. What are they? You have three strikes against you. You're poor, you're a woman, and you're black. She grew up in the public housing projects of New York City and was raised by a single mother who helped her achieve her American dream. Now, after reaching the pinnacle of success, she's paying it forward and calling on all of us to help those who need it most. So will she dip her toe in politics? She doesn't rule out a run. Also, why she says it is a time of power for women in tech. She joined me for CNN Money's American Opportunity Breakfast in New York. Thank you, Ursula, for being here. I am thrilled. We're going to talk about your, your personal story, your in- remarkable rise. The American dream, is it alive today? And what can we all do with our voices to help make sure it's, it is achievable for more people? So let's start with all of the firsts that you've achieved. The first African-American female CEO of a Fortune 500 company and the first woman to succeed another woman as the head of a Fortune 500 company. But when you were a child, a lot of people told you, no way, Ursula, you have three strikes against you. What were those? Yeah, I actually heard those words. You have three strikes against you. It's really kind of a strange thing to say to a kid. Very inspiring. Um, But when I was about 13, it was the first time I heard it. And the person said, you know, you're pretty smart, but you you have some challenges. What are they? You have three strikes against you. You're poor, you're a woman, and you're black. And you just hear that and it kind of goes away. And then later I heard it again, maybe when I was 17 or 18 years old. And I realized that it really troubled me for all of this time. And the reason why it troubled me is that two of these strikes, these strikes, are who you are. You know, you were, you were placed on the earth as a black woman, and they said, well, you, you know, this is a problem. And, and for me, it was, a, it was a motivator only after I kind of internalized the challenge that they had placed in front of me, which is one of bigotry, one of preconceptions, one of words not mattering, so not understanding the impact of, in, of uh, words on an individual and having to figure out a way to find my place with that as the foundation that these people had laid for me. So your mom, like all the moms and dads out there, was a big, a, a big, a big part of this. I think we're looking, this is little Ursula. <laughs> oh my God. I um, mean, you've talked about where you grew well, up. Look you've, at that. I was, uh, isn't that cute? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> my mother. There's your mom, and you grew up uh, in public housing on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Two bedrooms, four people, and you called it the real gradation of poor. But it's your mom who told you over and over again, where you are is not who you are. Yeah, I grew up in the best environment um, possible. And I I mean possible across all gradations. The physical environment was very, very, very challenging. even though when you walked into my house, to my house, my apartment, my mother, our apartment, it was great inside of my, my mother was very organized. She was 
feel, I called her maniacal about rules and organization and cleanliness and you know, demands. She was, because we were a lot of people in a very small space, and so the only way that you can keep yourself sane yeah. is to do this. By the way, this carries over into my life today. If you come to my apartment, which is nowhere near as small, I'm insane about organization <laughs> and, and that kind of stuff, so I kind of inherited it. But outside of that apartment was insanity. I, I, you know, I think about it now, and when I was growing up, it wasn't that big a deal because we were there. You, you're kind of in it. Yeah. But when I think back on it, it was crazy. I mean, we had drug people in the hallways, dealers and addicts. In the hallways? In the hallways. I mean, yeah, that was pretty common in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I grew up, first was in the tenements. Then we got, then we moved up to the projects, the housing projects in Baruch Drive, which was definitely, we had arrived by that time. Um, and it, and the, the neighborhood was a struggling neighborhood. The best thing about the neighborhood were the people. The physical infrastructure was a disaster. It was a disaster. Um, but the people in the neighborhood were all of the same kind. We were poor, trying, parents trying hard to protect their kids and give them a good foundation for the future. Every single person. We were raised, my brother, my sister, and I, by the neighborhood. We literally, if we walked to school, I had to walk from where I lived to, to my grade school, which was on 3rd Street and Avenue D, and I was on Baruch Drive, so it was a ways away. Yeah. Um, not that long, but let's say a half a mile. My mother would be able to watch us through these little opera glasses from the fire escape. And if my brother or my sister or I took a deviation at all in the process, by the time we got home from school, so this is in the morning, 10 people in the neighborhood had hit us over the head because they were watching us on the way to school and, and watching us on the way home. That, that kind of broken down, unfortunately, in, in uh, America today, largely in America today. But when I was growing up, we did have a It Takes a Village. It was yeah. a very, very poor village, but, but it was a good one that watched us. So also critical in your development, your mother, obviously, and your high school, Cathedral High School. And I just want to note, we have some girls right over at the second table uh, to my left here from Cathedral High School, including their principal. There they are. And some girls as well from Dalton uh, as well. And we'll talk uh, about uh, them in a, in a little bit, but we're glad that they can be here. So while you were at school, your guidance counselor, Sister Rosemary, said to you, Ursula, you can become a nurse, you can become a teacher, or you can become a nun, and your reaction was? None was out of the question. <laughs> it really was. I didn't quite know what a nun entailed totally, but I did know the parts that I didn't know I didn't think I would, I would like too much. Um, and they seemed like good careers. I, I, I didn't, didn't revolt or think it was um, demeaning at all. It just didn't seem... They seemed like they were fine, but they didn't seem to really kind of get me too much. They didn't get my heart or my soul. And so in our school, it's very different now, right? When I went to high school, literally to do research, you went to the library and you got a book out. There was no way to do searches online. You had to kind of go and you had to kind of know what you were looking for, <laughs> kind of generally. Today, it's a lot different, right? Oh, so wait, it was like that for me in, in elementary, elementary school, school too. too. Yeah, it's just, it's amazing how much it's changed in a very yeah. short amount of time, right? But, um, so I, I took a test called the PSAT, the Preliminary SAT test, when I was, I don't know, ninth grade, 10th grade, whatever you take them. And I did surprisingly well. 
in, in mathematics. It was surprisingly well for the environment that I was in, obviously. From the, if, when I found out later, it was not that great from the external environment, but it was really um, surprisingly well uh, based on what I had been taught. And, and I had a, a lay teacher who said to me, by the way, you should look at some other things. You're good at math. Maybe you should do, look at some other areas that you can apply it. And she said, go to the library and look at the Barron's book. Look at the Barron's book. The Barron's book of colleges careers. and careers, right? Okay. And I did. I went to the Barron's book, and, and uh, I knew at this point that my mother, that we had a really good life. It was very difficult financially, but it was really good. But my mother was really struggling financially. She, I mean, she just, to get, I could just imagine to get food on the table every day and rent paid, and we got you know, public assistance, cleaning offices, whatever we could to get food and, and a, a semblance of you know, what we would take for granted today, a reasonable life. I decided that I had to, and, and college was not an option. It was meaning you could not go. You had to go, or college was the only option yeah. in our family. You'd be disowned yeah. if you didn't go to college. And I remember saying to my mother, how the heck are we going to pay for that? She said, that's my responsibility. You just do the grades. I'll take care of the cost. It turns out she didn't, and I'll, uh, I'll talk about that. She did, but through the help of a lot of things that are being wiped out today. But. So I, I went to the Barron's book, and I decided four years of college. That's the m most I could do. And I have to find a career that pays the most money after four years of college. That was it. So I literally went to the book, opened up the book, looked at the most competitive colleges. I don't know what, what did I think. I could get into those colleges, right? And nobody told me I couldn't at that point. And I looked at the career that, required, that made the most money after four years of college. And in 1976, that was chemical engineering. So that was it. I read $29,004. $29,004 was what I made when I graduated from college and took a job, and graduate school, and took a job with zero. $29,004. And I will always remember that sum of money because it was spectacular. I mean, just think about $29,000. Yeah. But th by the way, then More I... More than I made in my first job in but journalism. I, I had an engineering degree. <laughs> An engineering degree I did, did get. There you yeah. go. And I didn't study chemical engineering just to, we're not going to get into that too much. I actually switched to mechanical engineering because I was so bad at chemistry. So. You've talked about feeling, as a, as a female engineer in America, alone and odd, those are your words, and that you were very comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, in college, I was, you know, I was studying engineering, and I went to Brooklyn Poly, which is now called the Polytechnic University of NYU or Polytechnic Engineering School of NYU. I'm not really sure what, how we've renamed it. There were very few women and there were very few black people in the school. And there were very few, very, very few black women. So I came from an all-girl Catholic high school um, and went to this literally all-male, fairly Jewish college. And I was a minority. So, and it didn't really mean a lot to me at that point because I was very used to, by the time I got to work, I was very used to being around a whole bunch of men who were fairly uncomfortable with, um, with difference. And it was an interesting statement. This is my words now, not my words then. It was a position of power in a lot of ways. For you. For me. Because one of the things I was very comfortable with was them. They were not very comfortable with me. And... It's, it's something I, I actually tell women about all the time now. I say, you've got to pay attention to, to where you are, really. Right? 
When you walk into a business meeting and there are no women, the first reaction is, oh my God, I'm the only one, and I'm a lower, I'm like, no, I'm the only one. Imagine all these guys, they have no clue. And I'm gonna run the the company one day. Because they don't have a clue how to really deal with you in general, particularly technical women. And you can kind of wallow behind that as as not having role models, which we don't have, and et cetera. I actually start to feel relatively comfortable with the fact that they were relatively um, awkward. We talk about the American dream that was so alive for you, Ursula. It was so alive, despite your environment, despite what you were dealing with. And you had people who helped, whether it was those people you told us about in your community or these folks at Cathedral. Is that American dream as alive today, enough alive today, and are enough people helping? I think it is as alive today. I don't necessarily think that enough people are helping. And, and, you know, I think a lot about this question because my entire existence was foundationed on three principles. One is that my mother believed that her primary responsibility, almost her only responsibility, were her three kids. All other things were secondary to that. And she prioritized her time, all of the money, the little bit of money that she had, um, her, all of the energies that she had around assuring that my brother, my sister, and I had a strong foundation. She reached out uh, to wherever she could get help, and, and she was not too proud to beg at all, and definitely not too proud to work. The second thing that was clear is that early on, that without other people helping us, my mother's best efforts would have been, not been enough. So I, I was talking about this, and we went, I went to grade school, and grade school was what, 20 bucks a month, $20 a month, and high school was $65 a month. I remember this very specifically. Six, my mother's highest income, that was when she died at the age of 49, was $4,400 a year. How old were you when she died? 25. Okay. Uh, I said that without crying, which is very good, because I'm on TV. Um, $4,400 a year, and when I was in high school, it was less than that. <laughs> it was a lot less than that. And the way that we got through high school was that the school, we were always, my mother was always late for something, right? She had to be late for either rent or, or something, I mean, tuition, et cetera. The school was reasonable. You know, obviously, we couldn't go there for free. I couldn't go there for free. But if we didn't have it that month, it just, you know, it, it was okay. And, we, and they would work it out with my mother. It was a lot more stressful on her than it was on me. But so that, when I went to college, when it came time for me to go to college, to apply to schools where the applications were $60. Yeah. Somebody remember this? Yes. I mean, I, you know, I applied apply to seven colleges. There's no way in the world I could afford to apply. That's like yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, half my mother's salary. But there were programs funded by some rich people from the city, from the state from the federal government that allowed you at certain income levels to waive the application fees. When I went to college, when I got into colleges, I felt, I was really stressed because we didn't have, these things were tens of thousands of dollars a year, and there were, there were programs from states, city, rich people who donated money to actually uh, allow me to go to, to, to go to school. And so all this was help. The reason, back to the American dream, for me, the American dream was 
the way that I lived it was you do your part. And knowing that not everybody, is, not everybody starts out at an equal level, we'll do as much as we can to give you a good start. Society will help, Society take, will help take care of it, give you a good start. So, so it's changing now. So what's wrong with it today? Or well, so today there's a lot of, you know, language, I, language really matters a lot, and particularly language of leaders. And I never, you know, this is, this is back to the three strikes thing, how it sticks in the back of your mind yes. without even knowing it, how much of a headwind it is for you without even knowing it. The rhetoric today, in general, is about the follow, is, is the following. If you don't have, you don't deserve to have. If you don't have, you didn't try hard enough. If you don't have, you, your, your, you, your group didn't help you enough. There's a, so much that's back to the individual. Not recognizing, not realizing, there's some of that, I'm sure, that if you don't have, you don't deserve to have. I, I'm sure that there's some of that. The vast majority of people who don't have, don't have a good start. And don't have a good start, don't have enough money, simple things. Like my mother was an immigrant. Uh, my mother and father were immigrants to this country. My father left. My mother was an immigrant. I mean, she spoke English, great. She had a high school diploma, great. But she had no foundation whatsoever to get a job outside of cleaning houses. And she had, by this time, she had three children. So somebody, bodies, institutions, government, institutions both private and public, had to help her. And her responsibility was to take that help and parlay it into something else. That's the American dream, right? And we are today, I think, structurally tearing apart the foundation of these helps. Yeah, it's just, it's, it, to me, it's amazing. Tearing apart the foundation. Right. We're removing it. And there may be good reasons to do that financially in the short term. It is, to me, one of the most dumb decisions in the long term. Have you been to the White House in the last six months? Absolutely not. So... If you were invited, because a number of tech CEOs, as you know, have gone and been invited, sat with the president, would you go? What would you say, Ursula? My consistent, my message to the White House, any administration, is the same. And that, and it, and it, it is the same because this is not a political issue. We've made it a political issue. This is a human issue. This is a, this is a long-term America issue. My, my message. Democrat, Republican, Obama, Trump would be, has been, and would be that people need, found, people need structures in society that enable them to do better in the future. One of the major things that government has to do is that. So what are those structures? Education, a, f a foundation in education which today is defined almost totally by income and geography, which is the most amazing thing in the world. When I was growing up, we went to Most Holy Redeemer. My mother was Catholic. That made it easy. The Most Holy Redeemer was my grade school and cathedral my high school. But even if we weren't Catholic, we would have gone to that school. A lot of kids in the school in Most Holy Redeemer were Jewish because it was the safest, best school in the neighborhood. The public schools were not adequate enough for my mother to assure. So, and by the way, we're now 40 years later, and guess what? We're about in the same place. Yeah. So education, healthcare. To have a debate about whether or not you can get glasses if you need them is one of the most bizarre debates in the world. Money should not be the foundation of those decisions. And that's what, and definitely not class shouldn't be the foundation of those no. decisions. But that's what they are today. No. Right? We also want a safe environment to live in. 
obviously, imagine if you had to go home and listen to a whole bunch of rancor and not be safe. So these are things that are, found, that are foundational. At, and I say this to anyone who's in power. That's what we pay taxes for. Yeah. That's what the responsibility of government is. That's what the responsibility of people who have are as well. And this is the responsibility of corporations. We have to come together not to give. We don't have, I love this idea of giving back. Back? What, who's back? We have to give aside. We're all the same. Forward. You have to give somewhere, but it's not back. Right? We have to give forward. So I actually would say the same thing. If I were invited, I would go. Okay. But I'm not the CEO anymore, so I'm hoping, like, heck, I don't get invited. You're still pretty yeah. But, but it's, there's, a, there's a different... The issues I have today are a little bit about language, mm -hmm. and, or a lot about language, and a little bit about what I think is behind the language, which I'm hoping is not true. <laughs> So we have some uh, incredible people in the audience, and I can't name them all, but you know, we have folks from the Robin Hood Foundation here who do so much to alleviate poverty here in New York City, from the Boys and Girls Club here, including Stan King back there, who runs, go Stan. runs the club. And, and go Robin Hood. I know Robin Hood as well. I was with Wes Moore this weekend. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, he's incredible, the new, the new CEO. Yeah. Um, and these are people that are doing so much more than their part so much more than I'm doing every day, so much more than a lot of us are doing every day. Um, so there's the question of what more we can all do. And then there's the question of, well, at one, what point does it take leaders like you who have just stepped down from leading these big companies to jump into the ring, into politics, and affect change? And CEO after CEO that I ask says no. This one I, would be, this one, add I, another one to it. But, I, and it, it's funny. I'll get to, to it, an, I'll get to it, I'll get there. To I, an extent, I, but why, why? I mean, look at what, so, I will never say never, even though right now I'm saying never on this stage. Because if I don't say never, it starts this whole it other thing. It has happened before, and yeah. those nevers have turned into I'm running. Right. Uh, um, first of all, what can we do more? It's a, it's a more... One of the things that I learned early, there's a gentleman who runs a school in uh, Baltimore called University of Maryland, Baltimore County. His name is uh, Dr. Freeman Herbowski. He's responsible for graduating more African-American uh, college students who go on to get their PhD than any school in the United mm -hmm. States. This is a little school in Baltimore County. It's a black man. He's an amazing guy. You know, got his PhD when he was like 18. He's one of these kind of savants. But he taught me a while ago and said, basically, and he did the one, you know, save a penny every day, save a penny and then double it. And at, by the end of a really short amount of time, I don't know how long it is, but you can do the math, you're a millionaire. And he said, we should do that with people. So get a person and own that person. Yes, who, Just who's? One. Just, Just one. one. That person gets a person and owns that person. One of the things that we're trying to do with my kids is to make their situation um, a privilege for them, to make them aware of the fact that they are unbelievably privileged. And while my, I wasn't and my husband wasn't, all we needed was a couple of people to help us, and we turned that into this great... American life, right? So if these are two kids, 23 and 27, they should have a person. Mm -hmm. Two, if they can have them, literally. 
that person is their brother or sister, and they take care of them, well, take care of them. They basically partner with them and, and drag them along. And we've gotten to the point where we say, well, Bill Gates gives billions and billions of dollars by the way he does, and we can't ever match that, so why should we help? What we have to do is what we can do. And what we can do, by the way, he's um, phenomenal. Uh, Bill, and when you understand some of the stuff that he's doing, it's just... And, and Melinda. And Melinda, yeah. The, 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 together, Bill and Melinda are just amazing, and they're just... But we don't have to be Bill and Melinda to actually have as much impact on an individual. Actually, we can actually have more impact on an individual by actually getting to know them. You go to the school and say, hey, my name is whoever you are, and, you know, I... I go to Dalton, you're in the fifth grade in whatever, PS 151, and you're going to be my friend. We're going to hang out. And, if, and we're going to hang out, we're going to come to my house, we're going to go to movies, we're going to do homework together, you're going to teach me some things, I'm going to teach you some things, and we can actually globalize that individual, make it a little bit better. We and we can, can we all, all do time. it. That is the requirement. That's what I do. That's why I spend a lot of time with kids, right? With kids there, teenagers, uh, kids. Now, why not politics? If I thought that the effort that I put into the political arena was an effort that would have more impact, equal to or more impact than the effort I do today, I would do it. I am a real believer that it will not. And I know that part of it's kind of a chicken and an egg thing, right? So if you don't get involved, you can't have it have more impact, so on and so on. But I think I, if I did that, I wouldn't be able to do most of the things that I'm passionate about doing now. I think, uh, you know, I think, okay, then where does that leave my 15-month-old daughter, right, when she's older? Where do does understand. that... I do understand. I do understand. And I, ha and I actually am one of the few people who... Let me take out one of the few people. I actually feel badly about that. Okay. I, be, I really do, because it's like, could I do this? If you could transport me into the role... I would actually feel better about taking it than if I had to run. And it's not the running part that I'm, you know, I'm fairly competitive, but it's, it's such BS right now that we go through to run, just to, just to run. I just need to get, if you want somebody to actually do a job, I think I would be a reasonable person to do certain kind of work. But before I can even walk in the door, there's this other stuff that you have to do, which is ridiculous. You know, that you have to kind of know more about me than my husband knows about me. Uh, you know, I have to be more saintly than Jesus Christ was. You know, and we know you're not a nun. And I'm not a nun. Yeah. And that we know. my husband knows me pretty well. So I don't want... And, 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 and. And then, when you get there, a lot of it is not about constructive dialogue. It's about, uh, particularly now, it's about actually not even dialogue. It's just about... So I do understand that I'm copping out a bit by saying, not me now, and I feel guilty about that. This is what cathedral did to me, thank you very much. The guilt, the guilt. and I may, the Catholic guilt. I may, I may actually have to change my mind at some point, but I, I, I think that we need to do a little bit more st structural repair of the political system before I get Look, involved. I appreciate the candor. Uh, I'd also appreciate it if when you do decide to run, you come back and you can say it on CNN and let, let us know. <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's talk about business. And uh, my colleague Lori Siegel and the CNN Money team just did this fantastic series on sexism in Silicon Valley and what's going on right now. And uh, e even though you're not in Silicon Valley, this is an issue across corporate America. And you said recently, structurally, business is still made for men. Yep. Still. Absolutely. Why? 
Uh, first, generally it's because it's run by men still. <laughs> and they don't have a clue what structurally made for women is about. And they are generally not, this is generally, I'm going to get tons of crap on this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, they generally don't give a hoot. And I'm they gonna, don't give a hoot? Yeah, about the structural changes needed. They care about women. But we're asking them to do some pretty hard things here. And I'm going to give you an example of this that's also going to get me in trouble, but I don't care right now. The woman, we have this health, the, the women's health discussion that's happening in, in Washington, the health discussion and the women part of it. So they, they call people who would be important to listen, the president called people who would be important to listen to come in and talk about it. So somebody had a camera watching the people as they left the meeting. It was really interesting to realize that there was not one woman in the meeting talking about women's health issues. And this is part of the problem with business as well sometimes is that there is a lack of a clear voice, clear understanding and a clear voice in the room about what's actually happening. And I think it's kind of funny right now that we're going through, we have, we're all aghast. And, oh my God, can you see what's happening in Silicon Valley? Can you see what's happening in these crazy companies? My question would be, look at the people largely who are running them and ask what their backgrounds are. Where, where have they lived and existed? How have they ever had to deal with a lot of difference? And without a structure around them, without them getting a structure around them, a board around them, some management team around them that can bring difference to the table, it would, it's hard for them to see it. It would be like all Catholics designing a structure for Jewish people. We just don't understand it enough, right? We don't, we don't, we're not, just not close. You, I would assume if all the Catholics were doing this, we would get some Jewish people in the room to say, okay, you got to separate this from this, and then we wouldn't know that naturally. It wouldn't be in our soul. And I think it's the same way now. So how business. do you, okay, so how do you fix it? Hire because, the people. But it's, it's, it's Hire the ridiculous. People. I think it's like 20, 19 or 20 Fortune 500 companies have female CEOs. Yeah, I'm not even talking about CEOs. By the way, I love the idea of CEOs. But there are a whole lot of jobs outside of the 500 CEO jobs. Raise in, them up. Raise them all up. And by the way, hire them. Hire the people at all levels. So things like the Rooney Rule, for example, in the NFL. We, having, have, it, we have it called the Wilson Rule. We're pretty famous for it in business. Xerox, the Wilson Rule. Having X amount of women, make sure you interview them for every right. sort of key and, position. And, you know, we learned Xerox is really good. Xerox, I retired, but I still lo- obviously still love it. I'm still heavily invested in it as well, which is one of the reasons why I love it. Uh, <laughs> Um, we did this thing, we, we, and we are a very good company from a diversity standpoint. We're definitely one of the leading companies out there. And we found, this is the, a black female CEO, at that time we had a, a woman CFO, the head of research was a woman. So we are, we're rocking and rolling on diversity. We're saying, yeah, we're pretty good. We had, we knew we had a long way to go. A, a long way to 50%, which, is, which would be reasonable. Right. And so we actually put in place this thing called the, the Wilson Rule. Okay. And the Wilson Rule is the Rooney Rule for business. So for every role, every... Now, this is not easy to do, and we've messed it up a thousand times, so we're not perfect at it. And it is, For every role, you have to have three great candidates, at least three great candidates, and they must be diversity, there must be diversity in that candidate pool. Mm-hmm. And then you find out, okay, people are smart. So they get three great candidates, and of course... They don't ever hire the so you got to then you got to keep iterating the rule to get around human nature's ability to actually outsmart rules, right? And just keep pushing and pushing there and pushing. It, it wasn't always like that. I read a story about back 1989, right? Long time ago. You're at the company. You challenge in some meeting an executive VP. Someone stood up and said, 
why all this focus on diversity? Like, we're fine. And I read that you stood up in front of everyone, chided this executive VP for displaying a lack of passion and principles. Yeah, and it was... This is, by the way, early days. Yeah, that's me. This yeah. is... Wow. Look at that. We do our digging. We, I, I was... Uh, you do your digging, my goodness. Uh, and this is in Japan. We were in Tokyo. In uh, Fuji Xerox. Yeah, this is me in Japan leading a team. Look at the hair. Wow. <laughs> and the glasses leading a team. That was short. In those days, that was short. I used to have hair like that was that, that big. Um, this individual who's a very good friend and an amazing leader long retired and became one of my biggest sponsors and one of my best friends um, in from a business perspective but also in, in personal life. He was trying hard to do the right thing. So the person actually didn't say why all this diversity. He said because we didn't have the word diversity in it. then it was affirmative action. Remember? Okay. Right, all this yes. affirmative action. We're getting all these women and Spanish people he said. Spanish people, they're Puerto Ricans, I, I thought of Mexicans, but Spanish people, and these black people in the company, why are we doing this? He thinks it, it's making it more complicated and it's lowering the standards. And the person, and I know the, the person who said it actually became a colleague as well, stayed in the company, and the person, he responded in a very organized, very um, respectful way. And you know, went through the whole thing, this is what we're doing, and these are the yeah. numbers and so on. And I, my, I was angry at this individual and more angry at him because he answered it almost like a math equation, you know, without a level of how dare you, mm. how dare you, you know. Formulaic. Yeah. He was, more, he was more trained at answering the question than I was. So we got into, I stood up and said to him, I'm angry at this guy, I know his name, his name was Gerald, but I'm really upset at you. And He's like, why? I, did, I thought I, you know, I did the right thing. I said, because you answered a stupid question, uh, an ignorant question answered, asked by a word my mother said I should never say by a stupid individual. And you gave it credence. And he shut me down. This executive just killed me. And rightfully so. He said, there's a, play, a time and a place for everything, and you've got to be more respectful. But then we became great friends. Great friends, because I would have to, he would call me to my office. I didn't even know who he was, actually, at the time. My now husband said, do you know who that was? I said, some guy, I don't know. He says, well, he's the executive vice president of the company. He runs half the company. And I said, well, this is the problem. He said, well, all you're going to have, this is my husband. All you have to do is look for another job. It's not going to be that hard. <laughs> and um, this guy, Waylon Hicks was his name, actually didn't do that at all. He called me to his office, and, you know, a little while later, and we... I would go to his office all often to just debate issues and mm -hmm. talk. And it was the first time that I met, at that point, a Republican, Midwestern, conservative person that I, I didn't even know I didn't resonate with those people, but I resonated with him on many things and liked him. And it was um, my, first, my first foray into political diversity. Mm. And I wish we can get back into that now a little bit more constructive. Um. I had read, and it stunned me so much that I wanted to fact check it live right here, that you did not feel discrimination because of your race on the way up. It was really strange in our company. Um, and part of it, I picked the perfect place for me at a perfect time and, a pla and place for the company. So I was actually welcomed in Xerox with open arms 
for who I was. They were like, yeah, I mean, they didn't give a hoot about how I dressed or how I spoke. They thought I was a really part sharp engineer. And we have a long history, started by this guy named Joseph Wilson, who started this company in Rochester, New York, and decided at the race riots in Rochester, some of the worst riots in Rochester in the 60s, that he could not sit in this company and just see it happen. So he actually reached out. My husband was a product of uh, Joe Wilson. My husband is 20 years older than I am. He's a physis retired physicist at Xerox. And he was one of these people that they hired. They went out and said, you know, give me some black people to, <laughs> to come in and work at the company. And my husband, I mean, by the way, he was a talented, skilled, degreed person. And he started this. So the company has this, a company has this um, personality that was a perfect fit for my personality. What clearly there was there were prejudices about my race and about my gender for sure. But the people were tuned and trained enough in Xerox to not be stupid enough to bring that up. Because I don't believe any, everybody was an angel. They were very concerned about my age. It was really amazing. Everywhere I went, I you heard were too young? I was too young. You're too young. How are you doing this? You're too young. You're too young. You're too young. And I, I would, you know, I had smart out answers for all of that. You know, it was an accident of birth. I have nothing to do with that. You know, to, you know, those kind of things. So, because you bring up your husband, and then a little bit, we're going to open it up for questions. So, so get them ready. Because you talk about your husband, I'll never forget Cheryl Sandberg before her, before her husband Dave passed away, writing about how one of the most important, obviously, personal decisions you can make in your life, but also business decisions for your career. It, is who you marry. And I feel exactly the same way. Um, it is the number one criteria for happiness or sadness and for success yeah. or failure. And he, Ursula, you've been very candid about talking about your rise up, saying that in retrospect, you have two children that you wish you'd had more. Yep. You've also said, we have to, I, ha I hesitate to ask the question to female leaders, work-life balance, because I hate when people ask it to me because I don't think balance exists. But you have said, we have to talk about it more. And your husband, after he retired from Xerox, stayed at home and did a majority of the raising the kids at home while you were becoming CEO. Um, the majority? I mean, if it weren't for him, they would be foraging for food in the garbage cans. <laughs> <laughs> Could you have done it? Could you have candidly done no it? No way. In no way. If he had And let me tell you, the, so let me kind of knit it all together. Of course I would have been able to do it. I mean, I, you, when you have means, you can build a structure around you that looks like a family, right? Somebody to pick up the kid. You know, you can build a structure. When I say no, we actually had children with the expectation, the desire, the requirement that we raise them. We, we wanted to actually, you know, kind of, have the tooling in place where we cook meals. and So we didn't have, we did not have live-in help. We moved to England. When we moved to England, we did. But that's because we didn't know what the hell we were doing. But when we came back home, we literally had never had live-in help. So we'd have somebody who'd come and clean occasionally, and whenever we had crazy things to do, we had a babysitter come in. I had a sister who was close by who could help. You know, we had um, stepchildren who could help. My, my husband is 20 years older than I am. So there were a couple of things that came together. Let me knit it all together. First, you should find a great partner. A partner, man, woman, whatever it is, you have to find a great one. Or, as my mother would say, be alone. Mm. It's better to be, you can, my mother would say to me all the time, you can do bad all by yourself. You do not need help. <laughs> right? And so if you're going to get a person who is not going to contribute to the positive forward movement of your life and family and et cetera, 
then don't get one. Amen. Right? And, and if you have one, just leave them behind. That's one. <laughs> Second is that it would be great if you guys had a discussion about what kind of life you want to live. And what happens often is you kind of fall into this. My husband, fortunately, was 20 years older than I am, so he had already gone through the fall into it and kind of, you know, mm -hmm. got divorced. And he was now a little bit more purposeful about, so what, what do we want to yeah. do? You know, how do we want to live? Yeah. And we had the second thing, that he was 20 years older than I am. So by the time I met him, he was halfway through his career. By the time I got a third of the way through my career, he was ready to retire. He'd been working at the company for 40 years by that time, so it was perfect. And so it turned out to have worked well. On the have more kids thing, which is a big mistake I made, there are a couple of, there are a lot of mistakes that I made, but there are some that I regret, that I actually regret. And that's one? One of them, for sure. Because I thought it was gonna be really, really hard. Uh, it is. But once, <laughs> but, I don't but, know. No, no, let me make what sure you understand. Let me, make, let me finish. The first one was really, really hard. The second one was really, really hard, but not exponential, exponentially harder than the first. Once you have the first one, the second one, then the third one, you know, you gotta have space for them and you gotta have means to take care of them. But I actually stopped too soon. My kids are such a joy. I mean, and I don't mean this like, eh, they were all joy. They were pain in the rear end, they, you know, all of the stuff that you can think of. But they are like pals of my husband and I. They are our, they're our backup. They, you know, they call, they, they argue, they think, you know, they, they call us clueless, but they are our backup yeah. uh, on just about everything. And it is amazing to have. And I, I just, my, and I think that we did a reasonably good job. It's still, I was saying to Jeff earlier, the, the jury is still out. You know, I, I think 45 is when you can declare success. Because <laughs> <laughs> it takes a while. You know, these kids, they kind of come back. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens. But right now, they're doing okay. And I have two nieces who are like my daughters as well. My brother's two, two kids, all in the same kind of cohort. And my granddaughter, um, in the same kind of age, somewhere between 25 and 30, mm -hmm. uh, 22 and 30. Um, and they're all part of the, the family. So since I wanted more, I just keep adopting all go. these nieces and nephews and there granddaughters to do it. So it would have been good. Before we get to questions, um, just about women in tech and all that is the, the uh, abysmal numbers, computer science graduates has actually declined significantly from the 80s, which is nuts. It is nuts. Uh, there are not enough women at these high levels of these tech companies, and we're seeing some of the repercussions of that play out. You have some female aspiring engineers, I'm sure, sitting right over here from Cathedral and Dalton. What do you say to them about the world that is ahead, how they grab it, and your advice to the younger Ursula? What should they hear? You know, I, I think particular, so I'm going to divide it into um, w women and then women who are interested in tech. So let me do the women who are interested in tech. I, if you are anywhere near interested and have a reasonable level of aptitude, this is where I would run to. We are, companies realize that they need women in tech. So guess who they're trying to hire? Women in tech. It's, it's literally go into tech. They will hire you and generally treat you well. Now, let me get, I'm gonna to get to that part of it because I do believe that this is a two-way street. So I think women in tech, we, we have built a, a set of norms in our society that say that women don't, shouldn't, aren't great at this 
these sets of skills. It's the oddest thing in the world. It's kind of like saying I, that you can't read. Women can't read. Women, girls and women can do just about anything that a man can do. Maybe not as strong, but definitely more wily and more adaptable, or as wily and as adaptable. I think more, but... So I think women in tech have... This is a time, this is a time of power. You, people, you, you will get a job. <laughs> you will get paid well. You may not like the environment, and this is the second part. Mm. We are not victims here. We have something to say about the environment. If, you know, this is not, they treat me badly. We have to actually own our position in the world and be strong and aggressive about it. And this is, you know, I, I, when I speak to people, particularly in college, they ask me about this balance thing. Yeah. Okay, balance, you know, I'm going to have to, I don't know if I can figure it out, and so on, so on, so on. And I say, oh, interesting. So you have a husband yet? No, no, but I, I'm dating somebody, generally from the same school, generally in the same program. And I say, I am, this is a conversation that we're going to have for five more minutes and then I'm going to move on. Because you're the problem, it's not the guy who's the problem. How in the world can you and another intelligent MBA student from Harvard have a discussion that has it be your problem and not your together problem? We are falling victim to, and they, by the way, this is a modern person. He's your age, right? I mean, he, was, he grew up and he can go on the internet, he can drive a car, he could speak English. He, he probably has seen women teachers. And, so why is it your burden to actually figure this out? You together should figure it out. You together, you have to pick someone or train someone that you've picked to actually be a partner with you, not this, uh, you know, there's a set of norms, I'm going to fall into the set of norms. And so the, the amount of times that this happens, Poppy, is amazing. Where women, I, and I mean talented engineers, and they just fall in line. And they you know, say, well, I'm going I'm to leave. I'm gonna have to leave when the, I'm like, when the, baby when the baby comes. By the way, there are certain things that you, only you can do, and I think that's probably an important thing that you should do. But after that, it should all be a discussion. It is, wouldn't you agree, so incumbent on the male leaders at these companies to show it. I, it, is, it is vital. When, when we had our daughter, my husband took a month maternity leave, which was way more than anyone else that he was working around. Now his firm has four months paternity yeah. leave, so yeah. I'm t- telling him he's taking four, four the, months, next time. the next time around. But you know why? I sat down with him and I said, why, why did you do this? How did you make this decision? His CEO at the first bank he worked at in Minneapolis mm-hmm. John Taft, in the 1980s... Did the same thing. When he was an investment banker, took three months yeah. unpaid paternity yeah. leave twice. Yeah. And guess what? It hurt his career so much that he became CEO. Yeah, yeah. He, showed, <laughs> he opened a door for my husband yeah. when my husband was a kid, and 30 years later, my and husband And this is the part that... You're so right. Like I said, we, these, today, this dialogue is so active today. I mean, about women, women representation, about balancing, about balance, about um, equity and equality, that men don't, men, so it's not only the CEOs, the men have to say something like, hey, um, I'm, I'm, yeah. I have a baby. I, my wife is having a baby next week. Guess what? This is not a one-person job. Yeah. This is a two-person job, and I have to actually be more engaged, so I have to take some time, so on and so on. It's a really big deal, so companies have to have a, a vo- uh, an ear that can listen to it, but individuals have to take some control about this. This is not indentured servitude. Literally, you work for a company that you want to work for. If they tell you that they won't give you leave, quit and find another place wow. that will. And, I, and by the way, and structure it. Most of the time, they will. Most people are not, most companies are, 
looking for talent so aggressively that they're not dense enough to believe they're going to take a talented woman or man and say, because they had a baby, which is the thing that we do in this world to kind of keep it going, because you did that, we're going to actually punish you and not allow you. To, the baby's going to raise itself. Own right? it. Own it. Own it. And, and you have and to take it. And push for it. And push for it as you go up. Men and women. It's not the burden of only women to do that. Men and women and definitely companies. Questions? So many. Um, right here, Lee Gallagher from Fortune. Hey, Lee. Come on, stand up. Um, you said that, Ursula, that um, not having kids was one of a few really big regrets. You said you had only a few really, really big regrets. What's another one? Well, I, I, had, I had kids. I have two kids. <laughs> so to have them, not having, not having more, more yeah. was a big so regret. They would be interesting to hear that they were not my kids, by the way. <laughs> I keep threatening to disown them. But uh, uh, the second one is that um, my mother was really sick uh, when I was, she died when I was 25. She was very, very ill. And I was, and she was in the hospital for eight days before she died. And we didn't even know that she was really sick. But the night that she died, I left the hospital and I knew something was going to happen. I, and, you know, you, this is one of these things that, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. But I, you know, this is instinct, instincts. And I've learned from that point on, and I'm not gonna cry, that there are these things that are not mathematical. They're not um, logical. You can't, you can't understand why, but they are so strong in you. When that happens, do not turn left or right, follow it, right? And I did, I literally, I remember sitting there saying, you know, I, I, I was so unsettled that I couldn't stay, so I left. And she would have died anyway, but she would have had me there. And that, was a big, that was a big problem, was a big regret. I, most of the other regrets that I have are, are having to do with people at work. People, people. You know, and this is back to the, you know certain things that you can't understand why you feel it that way. And you have these hopes sometimes that, I always say this, you know, sometimes people can't lead and, or, or aren't great at what they're doing. And I have this eternal optimism that we can train them, you know, give them another, we'll give them a coach, we can give them an X or a Y or a Z. And generally, my instincts about people generally are right, right. early. And okay. that early instinct about people, All the way. I try not to act on, and I always win in not acting. And I'm always, I always lose because I was probably right. I should have done it in the first place. Uh, we have one question here from Steve Melton from the Boys and Girls Club. And then, ladies, students, we talked about this. I know I'm coming to you next. Yes. Good morning. Steve Melton, Madison Square Boys and Girls Club. And thank you for the invite, Poppy. This has been uh, informative and expiring. Yeah. Ursa, my question to you is, in, uh, Stan and I work with uh, young people from challenging situations around New York City. And what we see the biggest challenge with them is changing their psyche to believe that they can succeed mm -hmm. after so many years of, of having challenges. So I heard you say earlier that you had these three strikes against you that someone said you had anyone being black, poor, and being a woman. I'm interested to know, at what point did it become transformative for you, where that no longer became an issue, or you saw it no longer as an issue, and you were able to get beyond it? How did that happen? At Cathedral High School. My high school was, I, you know, I have this fortunate life, kind of stumbling into good situations, really. You know, what the hell do I know about Cathedral High School? I went to Most Holy Redeemer, Redeemer grade school, and it's a tradition in grade schools, in Catholic grade schools, that you go to 
Catholic high school, and at that time they had a lot of segregated high schools, you know, men and men and women. Going there in ninth grade, so I would, you know, from eighth to ninth grade, there were a whole bunch of three-strike people around me. All there were some white people, but generally it was Hispanics and blacks and or first-generation American whites in in the school. All poor, um, all women, and it became and there was a community of sameness. With a with the desire to to move forward, you know what I mean. It was we didn't did, we didn't sit down, sit around and say we're going to be CEOs. We're going to none of that. It was just we were all in school. We were all competing for um, a very positive against each other. A lot of the times for a very positive outcome. So, cathedral was the first place that outside of my home that that um, reinforced that for me that there was a possibility that. That these two were that these three strikes because I think poverty is a strike, but but gender and race I mean they can't be a strike. Um, that these two strike that two of these strikes were not strikes at all, and so I fortunately happened into a, a great place. I didn't even really know it that much until I was a, probably a junior and senior in high school where it became clear that we were. I mean, we were a crew. We were hanging out. We were doing. We were traveling around the city. We, you know, we kind of knew we were not afraid. We knew that the world was out there for us, and it was pretty cool. And that was a good thing. And that's one of the reasons why I, I had been separated from cathedral for a long time. I mean, you go to high school. They, the, the cathedral is a typical Catholic school. They don't do good fundraising. Now they're getting better at it. I was just going to say, I hear from my school all the time. Yeah, no, it didn't. It was not. A, it was not a new thing. And. Part of it is that it became necessary for, for the school to do yeah. fundraising because, as you know, the Catholic Church is pulling away funding from some of the schools for, for a lot of other reasons. And so they had to start reaching out to alumni. And it's interesting. Cathedral High School is on 56th Street and 1st Avenue. And my first um, you have arrived gesture, this is what people said you have arrived, is we bought, my husband and I bought an apartment in Manhattan. We were living in upstate New York. And my kids had decided, in Rochester, New York, my kids had decided that you guys are going to live there when they, when in there. They're going to figure out a way to get to New York City or Boston or something. And so, and so we bought a place on 51st and 1st. And I literally buy an apartment on 51st and 1st, small one, nothing too grand. And we stay there and I walk up the street and I'm walking right by my high school, five blocks away from we, and I'm like, wow, we, I went to school here. And that was the first time that I actually knocked on the door in the very beginning and, and went back. But then there was a whole bunch of you know, ebbs and flows, and now the, the school is really engaged. The principal right there. So is really engaged and trying to get me back. And Dalton is here. And Cathedral is great, because Cathedral is what I would call a typical gateway school. It's a phenomenal base education. You learn to read. You learn to write. You learn to do arithmetic, you learn manners, you learn discipline, you learn math and all that other stuff too. But those th things that I talked about, the reading, the writing, the arithmetic, the discipline, you know, how you should look, how you should present yourself, how do you actually speak, um, fundamental things that a lot of schools are not teaching anymore. Um, you learn that there, and then you also have the opportunity, particularly if we continue to help the school and continue to get money to do tech things, they have a maker's lab, you know, a whole bunch of things that they're moving up, which is great. Dalton is on the other end of the spectrum. I all, I, we sold the first apartment and bought a different apartment, a bigger one, right up the street from Dalton. I don't know a thing about Dalton. I know it's hard to get into. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Cathedral is too, by the way. Cathedral them, yeah. is a great school, hard to get into. Um, this poor people, 
in, in the two schools. But do, someone, a, a colleague of mine who's on the board of, MI, of uh, Cornell Tech with me, asked me to go speak at Dalton um, because his daughter had done some project about me. And I, I was like, I, you know, I get asked to speak at all these places all the time, and it's a pain in the rear end. But if it's right up the street, it's kind of hard to say no, to say no particularly if you're going to see the guy forever, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I went, and it was, I just, it was really cool. It's a yeah. great school. The women, and a, the women led this uh, thing. It was bit by bit, I think it was called, bit yeah, by bit. Conference. Yeah, yeah, it was a conference that they yeah. put on, and it was really cool. So I'm, I'm planning to stay even more connected to Dalton as well. So before we wrap up, let's go to the students. Who has a question for Ursula? Who is going to be the next Ursula? Um, Tell us your name. And what Acacia grade? Palmer. I go to Cathedral. What grade are you in? Um, I'll be a rising senior in the fall. Congrats. Good morning. Um, <laughs> so being a minority and a female woman, you said that your mother pushed you to succeed. What advice would you have for children out there in the world without people pushing for their success or who are in the most unfortunate situations? Where should they start? Yeah, I tell you, this is another one of these. This is, you know, why don't you go into politics? Um, I struggle with this. So I'm going to, I struggle with this problem. With this, because I did have an unbelievable advantage. I had this not typical parent, one, she didn't even have her husband around, and she was, like I said, maniacal, and she had the ability to kind of do it all, because sometimes you have maniacal parents who literally just are so busy, they work three jobs, they can't, so I say, find a friend, I say this over and over again, find a friend, reach out, go to the, you know, go down the street, go to the janitors in the building, the neighbors, find a friend who can help you. You will be surprised at how many people will help if you ask. How many, if you, particularly, you know, you're not asking for money. You're asking for time. You're asking for a piece of their heart, a piece of their mind. Find a friend. Get engaged in things like the Boys and Girls Club. Find structures. Now, I'm saying this to somebody who's seven or eight years old who has no support. How does that happen? You know, so then what we have to do is reach out, reach out, we reach out. We have to continue to go to places and just say, you can find a friend and, you know, and keep pushing it that way. It is a hard problem because the, the problem, the question that was asked about by the person from the Boys and Girls Club, the Boys Club, I guess it is. It's not the Boys, boys and Girls, it is boys and girls, girls. Club. Boys and girls Club. The Boys and Girls Club is... The foundation of the answer to that question is that they're in the Boys and Girls Club. This, that's like hit number one. And we have to just continue to parlay it. It doesn't always take money. We did not have money. I got to make sure. I mean, we had money was not a part of the solution in my household. And if it were a part of the solution, we would have failed. Because we were really, we had examples and this, pers this positive perseverance my mother particularly, this positive perseverance, and she was not afraid to ask, and she was not afraid to, ha to teach us to ask. I'm gonna give you one side story because I know we have to end. My mother would clean offices. My mother, was a, a, what she did was she was a child care worker. This was a program put on by the city where middle class parents would give their kids during the day to a, a, a house, and we took care of them. It was like, it was called family daycare. 
So then, you know, we had three family daycare kids, and it was, it was totally fine. So my, we always had kids around. We had four. We were certified for four. It was not that great paying a job, but that's fine. But to make things kind of match, she would also do, like, side jobs. She would clean offices. And one of the offices she cleaned was the office of a dentist named doc, a doctor called Dr. Gerstein. I remember him. He was on 3rd Street. And we would get, so she would clean the office, and we would get, like, free aspirin, you know, this kind of stuff. I remember one day I was, and we would have to go with my, my mother certain times wouldn't leave us home alone. When we got a little bit older, she would leave us home alone, but otherwise we were with her. So we'd have to go and sit in Dr. Gerstein's office and literally not move, because you couldn't walk around, because, you know, that was it. So we sit there. And so one day he was in the office, and I was leaving, and he said, um, he, you know, take this. It was like some, some medicine. I think you'd probably be arrested now if you did this, but <laughs> some drugs. And I said, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> and we got out. My mother said to me, never say no thank you when somebody's offering you something. You say, you take thank it. Thank you. Thank you and take it. Because her thing was, we are not too proud to beg here. And this, this guy was going to give us something. I didn't even know what the hell it was. And I said, no, thank you. My mother actually did go back and ask him for the stuff, and we, we actually ended up getting it. And it taught me this, that it taught me that if you seem reasonable, asking for help is not a bad thing, and people are very willing to give it, very willing. And we have kind of, the, that's why I started out, language is very important here. And one of the things that's the most disappointing in the last 12 months in politics was the discourse was so damning and negative, to, by both sides, right? But so damning and negative by, in, in like large numbers, like these people, X, Y, Z. And I didn't think that it would make a big difference. You wouldn't think that it made a big difference. But this, I said this way before the current discourse, this three-strike thing stuck with me for a long time. A long time. A long time. I think... I know you have given and us... And so I did it with revenge now. You know, it was the, yeah. the two strikes. All three have been debunked. It's a, good it's a good motivator, but not something you should have ever had to hear. Never, right. And like I said, I had a maniacal mother. There you go. Loving maniacal mother, but... I think you've given us all uh, a mission that we can leave here with. Find a person. One person. You have time. Don't go out to dinner one night and take that kid to the movie instead. That is our mission that Absolutely. we take seriously. One um, I was getting ready for this interview, and I have a bunch of um, pictures on my, you know, the board next to my computer and a bunch of Post-its with things people have said that I aspire to. And one of them is you from like four years ago, because this has moved offices with me. And you said the world can happen to you or you can happen to the world. And you have happened to this world and you have changed it for so many people. You. And your mother would be incredibly proud. Or thank, thank, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a fan of the show, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And while you're there, leave us a rating or a review. Let us know how we're doing. And as always, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.